So in today's episode, we're going to talk about a slightly controversial matter, which is commercial surrogacy. Uh, We just wanted to put this at the start to say that we acknowledge that there are views both ways. Uh, We respect that other people have different views to us, and we just want you to respect our view. Thank you. Hi, I'm Paul. And I'm Grant. Welcome to The Atypical Rainbow. This is an episode as part of the series we like to call His and History, uh, which chronicles how we came about to have our twin boys, Matt and Jake. So, uh, this is episode one, meaning we're going to start from the beginning. Grant and I have talked about this before, but Grant, why was it important for you to have kids? I always wanted to have children. I think... I believe that legacy is an important thing in life, that I always wanted to have some sort of legacy that I left behind. And I think children is a very good legacy, something that you can be proud of, hopefully. (laughs) Were you ever concerned that it wasn't going to happen to you when, you know, because you're gay? I don't think I had that much of a problem thinking that. I don't know, I I kind of thought I would find a way. Um, So yeah, I didn't didn't have a big deal with worrying about my sexuality, meaning that I wouldn't be able to have children. That's very consistently optimistic of you. (laughs) I I also didn't have that worry, but as we're going to discover, I had this weird blind ignorance that came with this whole process. I always assumed that it was not a matter of if but how you know i had this weird assumption that i would you know meet somebody start a family and they would have a sister or i could ask a female friend or whatever whatever i needed would just come to me and obviously the one of the biggest hurdles for a lot of couples is finances so actually having the money to afford the process because even if you are a heterosexual couple who has to go through IVF in Australia it costs about $50,000 last time I checked which admittedly might have been a while ago but that was probably how much it cost when we did it yeah yeah so you know I I am fortunate enough to have earned a doctor's salary and come from a well-off family and had a uh, grandchildren obsessed mother who after I came out Uh, she had essentially given up all hope of having grandchildren. So for her, the the day I told her that I was, you know, I wanted a family was a really big deal for her. And it was nice. It was a moment that brought us closer together. But most importantly, I knew that she would have my back, that if I really needed help, um, financially particularly, to try and achieve this dream of mine, she would be there. So I guess I I got lucky that way. So mine was less optimism in the face of barriers and more just shameful ignorance and a lot a lot of luck Uh, for me having a family was a big deal because I mean it was a few things really I I always wanted to be settled you know from a very early age I really wanted to have stability and consistency and I always felt that having a family was part of that I didn't grow up in a particularly stable household. Lots of fighting and lots of uncertainty, and it never sat well with me. And I think I always thought that having kids was my chance to do a better job 
And I, like, it sounds terrible because I guess as I've gotten older and as I've been a parent, I can appreciate what my parents did for me and I can understand the lengths they went to to try and support me in the way that they thought I needed to be supported. But ultimately, I think I still wanted to be a different parent. Let's let's put it kindly. So having a family was an inevitability for me, I felt. And it obviously was a... Um, it, it met some sort of emotional need. And, you know, as much as there are days when I think, man, parenting is so exhausting, I don't think I could live my life any other way. Like, it would just be really... It would be it would not be my life if I wasn't a parent. So when we started all of this, I guess, when we started this process, I think Grant was mostly in charge of all of it. And let, let me preface this by saying that, you know, we had our kids in 2011, so a lot will have changed in the last uh, nine to ten years. Um, but why don't you talk about sort of what went into planning having kids? Well, I think the first thing that we had to work out was whether we were going to go with altruistic surrogacy. Because I think we both presumed we would have do altruistic surrogacy, which is basically a friend, because neither of us have sisters. So Paul's imaginary person with a sister didn't eventuate. <laughs> um, but the thing with surrogacy is that you need to have already had a baby and preferably finished your family. And the thing is, we were young and we were ahead of a lot of our friends. Well, we were young by comparison with a lot of our friends who were kind of, who were women of uh, high career achieving goals. And they, none of them were ready or had, and may, possibly hadn't even thought about starting a family at the age that we were, because we were what, 25, 26 at that stage? Uh, well, I, I think I was 26 just after they were born. So we would have been about 24 or 25 when we were planning. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not super young by any means, but I guess it depends on what circles you run in. Yes, it is young for Argo, mm. <laughs> as I have discovered multiple times. Yes. Um, like, yeah, obviously it's not young for teen pregnancies, but gay people don't have teen pregnancies. <laughs> So we had to decide what we we're going to do. Um, and I think we probably talked about adoption. But the thing with adoption is that even adoption in 2011 was very rare because these days women can raise babies by themselves. That you don't have the terrible situation that you had a few decades ago where young girls would, you know, disappear and return without their babies and basically be forced by their parents to adopt their babies out. So stranger adoption isn't really much of a thing anymore, um, which is very nice for the children. Uh, but it meant that we, there wasn't really that many options for us. So we could do overseas adoption, which is like a common thing. Like Modern Family made that very public about <laughs> gay couples having their Chinese baby. Mm. Um, but even that was very difficult and a very long process. So we had the financial opportunity to do overseas commercial surrogacy in certain countries, but not in other countries. 
So one of the countries that a lot of people do is the US uh, because it is very similar to Australia. But with how the US health system is, it's very expensive for a non-citizen to access anything in the US that has to do with health. Um, so that would include, you know, giving birth to the baby. So we had to choose an option that was within our means. And we ended up choosing India because that was a place where there was a lot of um, gay couples and some straight couples going over to India to do surrogacy. So there was companies that would do it. There was lawyers that specialised in the law around it. Apparently it was very good for the economy, but the government according to our lawyers, didn't appreciate how good it was for the economy. <laughs> uh, and they got rid of it after we had done it. Well, technically, they'd gotten rid of it for overseas couples. So, not a few months. So, in 2011, I think it was 2011, maybe at the latest 2012. Uh, this I learned from a friend who, uh, who also had his kids in India, but because he is Indian by birth, he was exempt from this rule. Um, what the government had decided was that overseas couples who utilise commercial surrogacy in India had to have been married, I believe, for three years. There's a certain number, uh, and it had to be heterosexual. They couldn't be homosexual. But that didn't apply to locals. So Indian, uh, Indian citizens who were homosexual could still access commercial surrogacy even if they didn't live in India. Yes. But it's not the business that it used to be. Hmm. Um, and... After India, things moved to different places, but that was after our time. Mm. And I don't know where people are going these days. I kind of lost touch with that. Um, But yes, India was something we could afford with a lot of help financially, uh, whereas the more Western countries were not an option for us, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, And Australia does not have commercial surrogacy, so that also was not an option. Mm. So we found um, a company in India who would do surrogacy and then we had to decide uh, what we're going to do genetically. So we decided because we were already a mixed race couple, we didn't really want to have mixed race children who were Indian and Asian or Indian and Caucasian because that might cause more problems sort of in general daily life when one of us was with the children if we didn't look like we were related to them in any way. See, that's you, you, you say that like we were being so benevolent, but to be completely honest, I thought it was just a superficial thing to be... For me, I just wanted the kids to look like us, not because I was concerned for their safety, because we're just like, but they need to match. <laughs> well, I was more, uh, well, it wasn't really their safety. I was more concerned about people constantly trying to stop me from kidnapping them <laughs> when they're my own children. <laughs> Which is something I, I worry about even though they do look like me. <laughs> mm, fair. Uh, so we decided that we were going to have a child who was biologically Paul's um, and we we're going to choose an egg donor who ha- basically looked as similar to me as possible. See, well, this is, you know, this is another unique dilemma to, to you know, people homosexual people is this question of biology how much does biology really matter and of course we you know you don't love our children any less because they're not biologically yours that's 
garbage and that you know i know that to be true but it was still something we thought about it 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 wasn't like we approached it at the beginning to say oh well it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter whose it is. Let's let's do the TV thing and mix our sperm and see what comes out. It was very much a, con- a consideration. And I'll admit that I took the charge on this one a lot, mainly because I, um, I wasn't really sure. I wasn't really sure how, like, how it would all go. I so part of the decision making process was the fact that uh, Grant is one of three siblings. And his older brother had already had kids at that point. And my logic, very, you know, rational, probably too much so, was that, well, your family's already going to have some biological kids, whereas I'm my only, my family's only hope. (laughs) Therefore, I would, uh, I wanted to go first, essentially. And our original plan was, in fact, to have two kids separately. It was to sort of have one give it a two-year gap, and then have another, uh, and one would be biologically mine, one would be biologically Grant's. And then that all went out the window. <laughs> Which also did bring up another discussion I think we had that never became relevant at all, uh, which was, with that plan, did we want to have a um, consistent egg donor so that the children would be related through their egg donor? Uh, but we decided not to go with that in that path, and then it didn't even matter. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so once again, biology. How much does biology matter, and in what way does it necessarily matter? Um, it's, again, it's, it's a question that heterosexual couples don't have to ask, but we had to ask it of ourselves and decide how important it was to us. Well, step-parents have that. That's true, actually. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah, step-parents, adopted parents... I guess it depends with them it depends on at what stage they're introduced into the child's life. It's mm. one thing if they didn't if the child never knew any better and the 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 parent was always the parent. Admittedly again, do they get referred to as a step parent the whole time or are they dad even if they're not biological, you know? I guess you're right. There are similar questions to be asked, but it, and then be different because normally a step parent situation is after the child is older and may have a, a greater understanding of the significance of a different mother or father in their lives. It's it's kind of I, I don't know. I some some days I kind of resent it. I kind of resent having to think about these things and having to think about how important all of it is, uh, because one of the things that was really important to me, uh, which I don't think I could have ever really achieved through the process that we ended up choosing, was I actually really wanted the kids to know their biological mother, not necessarily personally, but I wanted them to have access to it. I'd seen a number of stories, you know, I think a few years ago, or I can't remember exactly when it was, there was um, there was a big story about uh, sperm donors having their information released to the public, or at least made accessible to people who were born via um, sort of donor sperm. Yeah. And I remember reading all these articles about, uh, you know, children who would say they felt complete. Uh, but when they met their biological parent, everything just fell into place. Mm. And it's it's beautiful for them. And, I, and I, I would never hold it against them. But it made me really sad because it made me think, well, I've made I've made this choice with you, of course. But I've made this choice that the the option for me is to is to make the mum inaccessible through 
contractual means as well as geographical means. Because if I had the option, I would have wanted a friend to have been the egg donor. I would have liked them to have had access and, you know, and be in their lives, but not be the primary parent, of course, but to just be there and be available. But it wasn't an option. And, you know, there's there's no point lamenting a decision that can't be undone. Mm. Um, it, and also, based on everything that's happened, we'd be having kids now if we waited for that. Mm. Which, if not, sometime in the future. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which, you know, plenty of people have kids in their 30s. There's nothing wrong with being a parent at this age. Oh, no, there's no, there is nothing wrong with it, and it's probably much more common, but I don't regret the fact that I did it eight years ago. Like, I I think I would have regretted waiting when I was ready. Hmm. Um, and the fact that it's something that we would had would have would have happened to us because we were gay, right? Like, it's something that wouldn't happen to straight people. They don't have to wait, I guess, unless they have fertility issues. Um, but, yes, it would have been a delay from when we were ready to wait for everyone else, everything else to fall into place and everyone else to do their thing. So I'm glad we didn't wait. Hmm. I remember there was, during that period, uh, talking about resentment, you know, working in, in, in GP, I had a handful of patients who would come in who would just fall accidentally pregnant. Whether they be in a relationship or not, it would just happen to them. And I was professional about it and I helped them and gave them the advice they needed and set them up, you know, to make sure that the baby would be healthy. But I got really upset because I just felt like this is so unfair. This is so unfair that it's so easy for you to you know, do something that you enjoy to achieve something that I have to jump through over all these hurdles to achieve. Um, and then I, I think part of it, when we, we were talking about adoption, while I, I don't think I, I don't think I really truly understand still the process of adoption, I also got really annoyed at the fact that I was being screened, like as a parent, because somehow the, the process allowed it such that um, there was an opportunity for the government to screen me as a parent to decide whether I'm good enough. That really made me angry because I thought, why? Because like, there's no license to parent generally. No, right? Like any moron can become a parent if they do accident. The government doesn't jump in and go, oh, sorry, you're not ready. You're too young. You don't have enough income. Um, you're not emotionally prepared. You haven't got a career. Like just so many questions. But I have to ask myself these questions because it matters because I, there's this biological pause in my situation, meaning that there's an opportunity for, for, you know, someone to come in and go, are you good enough? And that just, it, it yeah, really, really pissed me off. Mm. Well, I remember originally, I think during the Howard era, when people were talking about um, children should have a father and a mother. And I was thinking... If the dad dies, would you take the child from the mum and adopt it to a family that has a mum and a dad? No, you wouldn't. Hmm. Like, a kid can have love from a just a mum, just a dad. So why can't a kid have love from two dads or two mums? Hmm. And I think there's... 
there may be another episode in this, I don't know, but it's always that question for me of, I feel like I have to constantly prove myself sometimes. I have to kind of prove myself and say, well, I am good enough. Every day I live my life to be better because I have to be better than the heterosexual, heteronormative parent. Because otherwise, if I stuff up, if I do something wrong, for some reason, it's a blight on all gay parents. Whereas if, you know, a a straight couple does it wrong, it's like, oh, it's a unique case. It's just them. Or it's cultural. But yeah, the highest standards to which gay couples are held to as parents, I think also... It just, it's exhausting, you know, it's emotionally taxing to have to ask yourself these questions before you become a parent. And I know that some heterosexual people ask themselves these things and good on them for, for, you know, um, analyzing their lives and deciding whether or not they're ready. But it's, but again, when they can decide that, when they just choose, all right, let's do it, most of the time, putting aside any fertility issues, it just happens. So, yeah, I, I think I just, I distinctly remember going through this thought process back when we, we were starting it all. Of having to be better? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm an overthinker. So, I was already... Because I, I know you've gone through that, particularly with having special needs children. I think the combination of having special needs children and being gay parents has been an issue for you. It's funny because ultimately, and I think now, now I care less. I think now I, it doesn't really matter to me, maybe because we've got a good support system, maybe because um, the school that the kids go to is amazing and the parents are amazing and the teachers are, like everything just was, we just fit. Mm. And the gay thing and the autism thing has absolutely no bearing on anything. Everyone's just, yep, that's how it is, moving on. So I think now I'm feeling more comfortable, but I know that in the way that I approach my life in general, in the lead up to it, I wanted to be as prepared as possible. I wanted to, I wanted to be the best, um, which, is, which is stupid. It, it's stupid to approach every situation like you want to be perfect, but it was how I'd approached my life up until that point. And so, you know, when with that frame of mind approaching parenthood these were all the questions that i had to ask myself and i just got exhausted because because at, at some point i think i must have developed some sort of social awareness and gone, well, why should i have to be perfect what will it achieve i, I don't know I, I i'll i'll i will admit i don't think that now now I, i'm i'm more comfortable and look and we live in a different age things change rapidly and it's not as much of an issue they're not that interesting anymore no no <laughs> we just fade into the background, which is which is a nice, which is not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so just that was that was what was going through my mind at the time. But where where were we? So we were we we decided on India. We'd managed to put together our finances and get a loan. We decided on what race we wanted the children to come out. <laughs> yeah. So then it came to a matter of logistics. So the process of having a baby overseas is multi-steps. So we had started with, you know, a bunch of emails, engaging the clinic, figuring out finances, and then setting up a time to go to India. So the costs weren't just about, you know, paying for the medical services. It was also about accommodation and flights and taking time off from work to be able to go to India to 
provide a sample, to have appointments, to um, set up meetings. You know, so we went in September. I think it was December. December 2010. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole thing went... But it doesn't sound right. No, it doesn't. I think it's September. Maybe it was September. And yeah, yeah, because the kids were born at 36 weeks. And so September, you know, it would be nine months. Okay. And... I, th- I also distinctly remember talking about my uh, blind ignorance. I remember at, at that trip, I think we, you know, it was a few days in and I had this epiphany that maybe it wouldn't work. <laughs> like we were having IVF and for whatever reason in my head, I decided, well, we're, you know, I'm healthy. We're choosing a healthy egg donor and a healthy surrogate. Why would this go wrong? This this you know, we don't have any fertility issues, but then... I can't remember if it was you or whether I read something, but someone told me, you know... This, I think it was me. It's, like, it's still only a 50% chance of success. And yeah. I went, what? 50%? There's 50% chance this won't work and all this would have been for nothing? Um, which sent me into a bit of a panic spiral. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the reality of it dawned on me. But luckily, we, uh, we didn't have that problem. In fact, we were almost too successful, really. Yes. Our original scan had three embryos visible on it. Yeah. So we originally got informed that we probably weren't having triplets, but we might be having triplets. But also, you know, in Australia, you wouldn't scan that early. Uh, that's not particularly normal. Again, at least back then, you wouldn't ever scan that early. Um, so, there, you know, other people who go through the IVF process, they may all have equally had a chance of having, you know, a multiple birth. But, uh, but yes, we almost had triplets and I don't know, I, I obviously would have been exhausted, but I wouldn't have been against it necessarily, but we landed on two. Yes. They would have been very prem, I think, which, Mm. yeah, provided everything went okay with their premature births, Mm. then yeah, we would have found a way. Plus you get a lot more money from the government if you have triplets. (laughs) Twins are boring. Yeah. Because it's all about the money. That's the only reason I have children, for the welfare. Well, no, but, like, you have, you have two kids. Like, you have twins, no help. And then you have one extra kid and you get so much more help that it's probably easier than having two kids. <laughs> was that then or was that still now? Um, it was at that time because mm. there was another couple who ended up with four kids because they managed to have two sets of twins at the same time. Because mm. they were trying to have fake twins, which is, like, Two surrogates with, like, embryos from each partner. But they ended up with four kids and they were on a current affair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was the start of it. Then we had an unofficial wedding in January 2011. Well, we we got to announce to everyone that we were having babies at Christmas. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also basically got to tell everyone really early because everyone knew what we were doing. So there was no reason to hide, <laughs> um, which became hilarious in hindsight because my cousin's wife was pregnant at Christmas as well, but they weren't telling people because <laughs> people didn't know they were trying. So she ended up having a baby before us, <laughs> <laughs> but we managed to steal thunder by announcing twins. <laughs> yeah. But yes, then we had the shotgun wedding mm-hmm. yeah. in January, which when we went back to visit our wedding planner, some of the staff did some calculations and said, oh, 
these children are very young. People who got married in January. <laughs> <laughs> and the the next few months were, uh, you know, it's very nerve wracking not being able to see things, not being able to, you know, we got regular email updates from the doctors about what happened. And at, I think it was the 24 week mark, there was a threatened labor. So um, the surrogate mum, you know, was was, was having contractions. Um, So we got told that the procedure was done, called a cervical stitch to try and essentially hold everything in. And it worked. Mum was put on bed rest for pretty much the entire pregnancy after that point. And so I got the stitch held. But, you know, it was it was frightening. You know, we got got the notice of 24 weeks and there was a possibility that, again, all of this would have been for nothing, that we would have lost our kids. Yeah, so basically for 12 weeks, every morning we woke up worried there'd be an email. Mm. That's a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And we're both studying at that time. We'd planned it so the kids would come... Just after you finished your GP exams and I finished, well, I was meant to finish my uh, postgraduate diploma, but then I ended up delaying one subject uh, because of all the logistics of actually having the children. (laughs) So I ended up going back and studying for a trimester when they were five months old. Yes, which which we we will come to in a later episode, but... Luckily, things went well. Yes. The, the kids got to 36 weeks. And then the real fun happened. Well, yeah. So, to finish off that bit of the story, I went over because Paul, being in training, could only take a certain amount of time off. So, it was decided that I would go over after my exams. So, I did exams, I think, in early July. Mm. Went over. Basically, once they knew I was there... Because she'd been on bed rest for 12 weeks at that point. Uh, they had they did a C-section, which was always going to be the plan. Because they find that psychologically it's best to basically give a general anesthetic to the surrogate. And then they do a C-section. So when she wakes up, the babies are gone. Which um, causes less attachment. Which is also one of the reasons why even if we had chosen to go with... Um, an Indian egg donor, it would not have been the surrogate's eggs. So one of the other practices for her psychological health was to make sure she didn't have a biological connection to the children she was carrying. Mm. So that would be easier for her to um, disconnect from them. Mm. Um, And part of the legal process, which we might come to later, uh, did end up requiring uh, that she was present at the same place as the kids. So she did meet them once. But I think from her point of view, it was kind of just like meeting someone's cute little babies. Mm. Uh, so obviously all those psychological things worked. Mm. So yes, I went over, they did a C-section and the children were born. And that's where we'll leave it for now. <laughs> so if you want to share your birth story, let us know. Uh, shoot us a message. Feel free to post something up. Uh, we haven't figured out the technology to record vi- um conversations over the internet yet because we're amateurs at this but maybe one day we'll figure it out if you wanted to tell your story thanks for listening Uh, keep in touch at the atypical rainbow on facebook and instagram uh, and we'll see you next time